Hi, everybody. Savan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. Hope you're doing well. I had a bit of an emotional beginning or introduction to this call-in show. A singer I really like, a songwriter, a wordsmith, a lyricist, a troubadour that I really like. It's just revealed that he has terminal cancer. And um, he's young, he's 52. And um, it hit me hard, so I wanted to share my thoughts and feelings about it. I hope you will find it interesting and um, motivating and inspiring, with any luck. But the first caller, ah, what do you do if you are a smart, young science graduate and you go to work in a lab and there's some bad stuff going on? To what degree has science become corrupted these days? We talked in great depth about that, a really, really interesting guy. And now the second caller is, um, well, what, what is called indigenous people. You may know them as Native Americans or Native Canadians, Aboriginals, and so on. The preferred term, as he told me, is indigenous people. Can they gain justice for the past wrongs they've suffered at the hands of the state using the state? You may be forgiven for putting some money on guessing my answer, but... I think that the route we took to get there was quite powerful, and it was a very, very productive, enjoyable, and I think powerful conversation that we had about injustices and when is it time to let them go and live for the future. Freedomainradio.com slash donate, please, to help us out, help us the show. Sign up for a subscription. We'll take um, a Bitcoins or cash or whatever you have freedomainradio.com slash donate. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Stefan Molyneux. And um, if you want to do some shopping, you can go to fdrurl.com slash Amazon to use our affiliate link. Sundown in the Paris of the prairies. Wheat kings of all our treasures buried. And all you hear are the rusty breezes Pushing around a wet of vain Jesus So, last night I couldn't sleep. I don't know if it's because of that magnificent bastard Milo's attack on social justice warriordom or what, but I, around three o'clock in the morning I rolled out of bed and I checked the news. And Gord Downey, lead singer, lyricist of the Canadian rock band, The Tragically Hip, announced yesterday that he has terminal brain cancer. He's still going to do a tour this summer. And let me tell you, if you get a chance to see this band, this man, this force of nature alive, please do it. He got a very invasive and fast-growing form of brain cancer. It's inoperable. He has not responded to... uh, treatment and uh, his doctor has uh, just told him that he is uh, terminal based mother (laughs) and he is an incredible entertainer singer he tells stories you look up on youtube his killer whale speech from years back and they, they have some amazing songs a little uneven in the output, but, you know, check out 38 Years Old, check out Boots or Hearts. Great, great song. Um, and a mournful, impassioned 
dedicated soul-searing baritone, which is unusual. You know, all these damn tenors making it impossible for us baritones to get a note across without straining ourselves. And he was diagnosed with the cancer uh, in, in December. He's gone surgery, done chemo, done radiation. And uh, he, has the, um, he has the diagnosis. He is one of Canada's greatest songwriters. And just the, the song that I started off, obviously I can't do the song justice, but uh, um, that's a great line. And it says, um, the walls are lined all yellow, gray and sinister, hung with pictures of our parents, prime ministers. And that's true. In high school, there were all these pictures of our parents, prime ministers, and it's just those little details and connections that the man was able to bring across to, to the audience. Uh, he was, um, is, I don't see Pakistan's. He uh, is able to encapsulate and concentrate and reflect back details and essences of what it is like to live in Canada and what it is like to have the history and the challenges and the nature. The nature is pervasive throughout his um, lyrics and uh, the despair as well. And then that song, Wheat Kings, which is an incredible song. Uh, He sings, um, because it's about a man who was wrongly convicted of murder. 20 years for nothing, well, that's nothing new. Besides, no one's interested in something you didn't do. And that's true. The man is, barring divine intervention, the man is not long for the world. And I am uh, amazingly impressed with the degree to which this band had been together for 30 years. They met in high school and they've been doing the whole thing they they tour relentlessly they they 13 studio albums he did three solo albums he wrote a book of poetry uh, maybe more than one but the one i remember it says said diet on the road or something like that if you're on the road what do you what do you consume and the the poem was three words beer and gum so maybe he didn't live the healthiest i don't know but that commitment that commitment to getting a connection with the audience that commitment to concentrating and risking and going to the edge of what you're capable of in order to connect to the audience. I try in my own small way to emulate this. There are certain people like, my gods are singers and philosophers. <laughs> and that is, that's my, my twin pantheism. And uh, I've uh, always, um, you know, who doesn't go to a concert and at least think about being up there, you know, Freddie Mercury, Live Aid, whoever, Sting, Secret Policeman's other boss. I shall be released. You've got to listen to that. Or his Sting's um, message in a bottle, which he does acoustically. Beautiful. But there's a phase, you know, I know a lot of younger people listen to this, and I'm, I'm glad that you do. But there's a phase, you know, when you're young. At least for me, there are some uh, deaths. Um, three in particular come to mind. I had a, a friend. I first met a gentle, wonderful, deep, resonant soul that I first met when I came to Canada, in Toronto. First I lived in Whitby, then came to Toronto. And I mentioned before, like, I just, you know, feel like I'm reaching with robot arms into a amber 
woven past and pulling someone back out, back, back to life for a moment to live forever, as Gord Downey lives in his songs. We'll live forever. But this Mark, his name was, a great, great kid. We were the same age, and while the other kids were playing Let's Punch the Girls in the Groin, we would walk in sort of Brownian motion patterns around the playground, just talking about everything, everything that we could think of, everything that came to mind. The, the kid was an incredible conversationist. And if you spend a lot of time around kids, you'll know how rare it is to find a great conversationalist who's a kid, even adults for that matter. And um, didn't come to school one day because he didn't wake up. He had a congenital heart defect. Nobody knew about it. He died in his sleep. Heartbreaking. That this was the only connection that I made with friends, and it took a long time to make another at that time. And then a guy named Glenn had a degenerative disease, went from a walking kid to a wheelchair to a grave. And another friend of mine, a dangerous, impulsive young man, died in a motorcycle accident. Beheaded. So there are some young deaths from impulsiveness, from accidents, from diseases that, or disorders that don't promote the attainment of adulthood. And then there's like this long period where nobody dies, like 20 to 50. Nobody dies. And then it starts, you know, um, Friend of mine, a guy I worked with many years ago, was much older than me, said, oh, your 40s, it's about teeth problems and your parents getting sick. And I guess uh, late 40s, early 50s is when people start to drop off. I guess the mortality begins to increase and so on. And um, when you have a talent for language, for singing, for communicating, for fronting a band, which is, an inc- I mean, the, the amount of, the alignment of the talent planets that needs to come together to be a great front man of a band is something that is, I mean, this is why they don't fire them unless they're complete jerks. They don't fire them because it's so rare to find somebody who can connect with the audience to that degree. And um, Gord Downey, I don't know. <laughs> it's tough for rock stars to go bald. It's fine for YouTubers, but it's tough for rock stars to go bald. And he handled it, I guess, with better grace than the edge from you too. But um, what I would suggest, and we're going to talk about this in the show because I, I know the questions that are coming up, but what I would suggest is listen to the band's music, listen to the man, ugh, the passion, the, the, the mournfulness, the intensity, the, the concentration of energy that he brings to both his live performances and to his studio albums is nothing short of cosmic and astonishing. You know, there, there are certain concentrations of talent that strike me almost as supernatural in, in their intensity. And that is something that uh, I uh, really uh, recommend that you, you pursue. And I mean, I, it, it struck me, of course, you know, for those who don't know, you can see the scar on my neck. I'm a cancer survivor myself, lymphoma, a couple of years. And it just reminded me, you know, you never know, right? Cancer can sometimes be a spear you throw away, and sometimes it can be a boomerang that cometh back. And uh, it reminded me, as I hope this mortality 
of people you have a connection with that you care about. I hope that it reminds us that we do not know how many days we have. We do not know when that final door is going to close upon a history and all our free will and all of our animation and all of our choices and all of our decisions and all of our commitments will then be frozen in time, immovable, save for the slow shifting of degrading memory. Record what you can. Pursue your passions. Connect with the world. Fight the good fight. Defy evil. Shine incandescently as best you can. And it doesn't matter what field it's in. But it does matter that we leave something that accumulates over time. Many years ago, I watched home movies of someone I knew. And there was some aunt smoking away in the background of some home movie. I think it was from the 70s or something. I said, oh, who's that? And my friend said, oh, it's some great aunt, I think. I said, oh, what was her name? And she said, I, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think. Don't be that person. If there's anything you can do to avoid it, don't be that person. Don't be the person who's like a little thumbprint in the back of a Degas painting. Crowd in distance. Little thumbprint of nothing in absence, of compliance, of conformity, of forgottenness. Be like some of the wildest flowers, the forget-me-nots. Be something wild, be something extravagant, be something passionate, be something dedicated, be something with a purpose. Be something that leaves the world brighter and deeper and richer than you found it. It doesn't have to be public. It can be among the people that you know. Be a truth-teller, be a fact-bringer, be a resounding bell of empirical reflection. Be something that the wandering mind of people bump up against and recoil from and awaken through contact. Be like one of those electrified bumpers in a pinball game. Bing, bing, bing. When people wander, they are confused, they are desperate, they are frightened. Be someone they can recoil from. And who can wake from? They may, like all startled and woken sleepers, through the air horn of air horn of simple facts, they may be startled, they may dislike you, they may have problems with you, they may never be right again with you. But all of that is better than sleepwalking your way into an old movie where people forget your name in 10 or 15 years. And they say, that great aunt, I can't remember her name, never said much. Nice, always gave me the same kind of presence. Um... Left life like a javelin dropped from a plane into a clear pond. Bloop, bloop, and gone. So, Gord, I am incredibly sorry for your diagnosis. I am sorry of the music 
that we will not get to hear from that golden, aching throat. But I will tell you this. I will tell you this, Gord. While there are ears to listen and hearts to love and thirst for depth and clarity and beauty, Gord Downey, you will never die. All right. Let's move on with the call. All right. Well, up first is Joe. And Joe wrote a pretty long message about how great science is, how it can never be corrupted, and how everything is perfect <laughs> within that sphere. Um, Joe's going to read the email that he, that he sent to me to start off the call. So welcome to the show, Joe. Hey, how's it going? Uh, it's going all right, Joe. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. Can you hear me well? Yes, perfectly. Thank you. Okay. Just let me know if at any time my sound is a bit off and I'll fix it. So uh, my email, so I'm a 24-year-old graduate student in medicinal chemistry slash chemical biology. I had been admitted to various different schools. I had multiple offers from individual labs upon finishing my undergrad. I eventually made the best decision I could with the information that had been made available to me at the time, and I picked a specific lab that seemed to have copious amounts of both money and publications. The reason I chose this lab was that it seemed to be the best place to propel my career forward, despite it being almost 5,000 kilometers away from my home, my family, and my friends. <clears throat> As I was gearing up for the long and grueling five years that were to come, I saw the lab I had chosen for what it really was. The reason this particular lab had so much money and fame was because the professor was forging his results and presented these erroneous results to both private and public funding organizations in an attempt to gather more money for himself. Worse still, when graduate students, postdocs, or lab techs brought the non-consistent data to his attention, he simply would brush them off and tell them to hide the information. It even got so bad that the professor fired a couple of postdocs and graduate students because he thought they weren't going along with his manipulated data. This professor is more concerned in being the rock star of the university and the celebrity of the city than he is in being an honest scientist in the pursuit of truth. Sadly, I think this attitude is pervasive in the minds of many of my colleagues. I think this is so because our society has a tendency to view scientists as the new priests and science as a new god, as you have precisely pointed out. In short, I have two questions that I was hoping you'd help me answer. Firstly, how can I, as an individual up-and-coming scientist, help prevent the forging and manipulation of data from happening within the scientific community, but particularly in, in my own field of medicinal chemistry? Um, and secondly, how can I play a part in depriestifying scientists and help bring this careerism, which can often end up with a lot of innocent people suffering, to a halt? So that was my email. Um, I'd just like to add that I have since left that lab and I moved to uh, a different lab in the department. So I, I, I must, I, I, as I read this now, I realized I hadn't uh, told you that, but that's, that's essentially where I am now. So I'm in a new lab, uh, but with this sort of wound, I guess, the scar, you know, <laughs> that uh, you come in all fresh face thinking, I just want to 
learn me some chemistry and you kind of get slapped, you know, slapped in the face and this big shock. I don't, I, anyway, I just, I'm looking for some help here. Right, right. The data that you say was being faked was to do with um, obviously some degree of medical cures or approaches to medical illnesses, right? Or yeah. Ailments. So actually, I think this is very. No, no, I don't. Sorry, I just don't want to get into details about it. I just want people to understand that. Yes. Yes, it is. To my way of to my way of thinking, this can be fatal for people, right? I mean, if you if you fake results about that which cures people, then they will take pseudo cures and not pursue potentially better cures. So this couldn't get people killed. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, it, it's, it, it, it's, it's like saying, you know, we're going to cure your disease. So drink some bleach. I guarantee you your disease is going to die. Yeah. That, I think that's... So the, the, the kind of person who would choose fame and money at the expense of people's survival is a shocking, it's a shocking state of a personality, to put it mildly. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Absolutely. Now, where was the funding coming from? Like, uh, was it coming from government? Was it coming from private right. agencies? How, how, how was it possible right. that there was not quality control and independent verification of such important data um so so i so the first question i think it, it both comes from government so the 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 country where i'm at uh the government has um specific boards like science boards science and, and engineering i guess councils where they write a grant and he gets approved uh but most of those grants are based on preliminary data you know or oh this is where we'll take the research um, based on what we've seen. We, uh, we hope this will happen. So give us money. Now there's, there's, there's very little in ways in like in, in terms of um, making sure that you use that money for what they actually, where you actually said you were going to. Uh, but that's, that's the, the government. Um, and then there's also private organizations. Uh, so, so if, like if you're working on specific disease X and this guy is, um, you know, he goes to societies that say we raise money for disease X, uh, or or he goes to to really rich uh, people in the in, in the neighborhood, I guess, in the city, uh, and it's like, oh, by the way, uh, look at how good this is. This drug is killing this disease. Um, give me give me your money because I need your money to push it into clinical trials or. Um, well, and there is, there is, of course, I mean, I know this from my own support of cancer research, but there is, you know, people who have survived an illness, obviously very, very interested in finding a cure for its potential recurrence. And yeah. also, if, you know, if you just buried your, your wife or, or your husband, or as Joe Biden tragically had to do his son from some fell disease, you are emotionally very vulnerable yeah. to exploitation from people who claim a couple of bucks to a cure, right? Well, absolutely. And, and I think the, the tough part too is, so this guy, um, he's, he's what the British call, he, he has what the British call the gift of the gab. So he's a very good salesperson. Um, he, you know, he's a relatively good looking young guy, uh, comes up to you, flexes his muscles a bit, winks at you with his big blue eyes and says, I, I'm going to help cure this disease X and oh wow, uh, you're so smart. 
take my money. Um, I think that plays a huge aspect, to be honest, that this guy is a, is a young guy with a, uh, I think he's from somewhere where they have an accent, somewhere in, in the British Isles. Um, and really takes advantage of people's vulnerability, um, uh, willingness to, to give to, you know, to a noble cause. Oh, I'm going to, I want this disease X done because, you know, my loved one had it and passed away or fought it valiantly and survived. Um, well, especially, of course, uh, now that the link between dread diseases and genetics is fairly well established. People who like, well, my father died of this disease. He was, you know, he had me when he's, I got 30 years, right? My father died of this disease, which means that I may be more likely to get this disease. So if you bury your parent and you carry the genes, potentially, you are also vulnerable uh, for fear of that illness and maybe more keen to, to give money for a cure. Absolutely, absolutely. And see, this guy, he, he you know, he goes after the children as well. Oh, you know, yeah, your grandfather had it. Uh, it's possible that your father has it. Uh, you have it, and even your child. And then obviously that freaks people out. <clears throat> and he shows this data. Um, and they just cough up money, and and the university just... <clears throat> <coughs> Sorry, I, I got a bit of a cold, so I apologize. Um, I, I can cure that for you yeah. if you like. I've got some data, yeah. and uh, you know, just uh, we'll, we'll arrange through this afterwards. Yeah, for, it's mostly prayer, but it's really, really effective. Yeah. Are you flexing right now, Steph? Please yeah. tell me you're flexing. <laughs> Wait, blue eyes. Look into my blue eyes. That's right, that's right. Um, I, you know, I just I just had the eye drops which widen up so they can photograph the back of your eye. I should totally do a show with those. <laughs> See if anybody noticed like the Bambi saucer eyes or something. I look like I'm Elsa. Uh, sorry, go ahead. That's okay. I feel better already. Um, so, um, he the the fact that he brings in so much like I'm talking about millions of dollars, millions sure. and millions of dollars um, to this satellite campus kind of nothing really going else for it. So. I think there's there's a people willing to look the other way, I suppose, because they they say, oh, you know, his drugs aren't in clinical trials yet. He's pushing. That's why he needs all this money. But hey, this is good money for our publicity, and he's a scientist, and he's a good-looking guy, and whatever. I, you know, it, it, and it leaves me um, really shocked, I guess, like it, it, to expose my uh, naivety. Uh, it, it left me just flabbergasted, you know. Look, I mean, science is largely a government program. Oh, absolutely. And whenever the government touches anything, it turns it to crap and corruption and waste and dysfunction and exploitation. And it tends to promote shallow, self-confident people who are generally pretty to positions of influence. And uh, there is you know, science itself. I love science. Science is the coolest thing ever outside of the free market. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> it, but it's a government program. You know, comparing science as it stands now to science as it should be is like comparing the welfare state to charity. Yeah. Mm. I mean, it, it's not the same. Uh, and, and there has been an enormous amount of corruption in, uh, uh, in science, the, the pursuit of money. And, and because in, in the free market, 
If you make a claim, hey, we made $5 million this year. Well, you've got accountants, you've got shareholders, you've got um, regulators, you've got um, a whole bunch of checks and balances. You have a board, usually. You have a whole bunch of checks and balances where you have to verify your actual information. And still, there can be corruption. But when there's no person who benefits financially from the exposure of corruption, corruption flourishes. And science as it stands, who financially benefits from the exposure of corruption? Yeah, nobody. And, you know, nobody. People, because, you know, like I put forward skepticism about various scientific positions and people are like, oh, well, you know, if you can disprove all these scientists, you'll be famous. It's like, I don't think that's how it works. Because the whole the whole peer review process as well is, um, you know, it turns science into the the whole government process in science turns science into like a factory under Stalin. You can just make up whatever numbers and, you know, like it's not anything real. There's nothing market driven. There's nothing limited. There's nothing, there's no multiplicity of, of warring interests, which is the only way to minimize corruption. Sorry, you were going to say. No, no, absolutely. It's so true. And you know, what's, what's the most terrifying part, part about it is that, you know, like, the, the whistle, well, the whistleblowers, who I guess in suppose in this case would be me, uh, I'm just some lowly graduate student. What am I going to come up against some professor with millions of dollars in funding and all these people who are invested in just milking the taxpayers for everything they've got to just further their, you know, what they call science, which is really just mental masturbation. Um, oh, no, no, that's that's really is an insult to masturbation. <laughs> No, that really masturbation, um, unless I guess you're flying a plane while doing it, generally doesn't get many people killed. Yeah, well, so this is true. Uh, masturbation would be a a much a net positive um, relative to what's going on here. Yeah, absolutely, and and you know the the, the uh, sorry, I'm trying to think of a way to phrase this the the extent of and you look the injustice, you know, <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, sorry, the extent of the injustice is, like, it, it, it paralyzes me uh, just to, to look at this, uh, you know, and, and just be in shock of how these people can do these things, uh, manipulate to get, you know, more money and, oh, look at me, I'm the, I'm the rock star. Oh, no, people, look, when, when it comes to money and no accountability, there's no limit to that. I mean, I know it's it's a tough thing for a young man like yourself to to see up close and personal. But when people have virtually no accountability and virtually unlimited funds uh, based upon a particular story to be told, they'll tell it. Yeah. Look, yeah. just just think of the advertising industry, right? So the advertising industry, let's say that your job is to promote brand X. And let's say you don't even particularly like brand X. Let's say it's not that great for people. Let's say it cleans copper pennies overnight or something like that. But you will create a very compelling story about how cool, how sexy, how hip, how fun Brand X is. Yeah. Maybe you'll even put people's names on the bottles. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But so advertisers will tell wonderful stories for money. Oh, yeah. And certain religious figures will tell wonderful stories for money. Being paid for storytelling is one of the oldest human occupations. Probably the second oldest human occupation is to tell stories for money, and uh, there's a long, illustrious, somewhat beneficial, 
and somewhat evil tradition of people who tell stories for money. Marxists tell stories for money and power. They tell stories about exploitation. Social justice warriors tell stories about exploitation and white privilege and you name it for money. Black Lives Matter. People do the same thing. People will tell and narrate and create very compelling stories in return for money. Because stories create comprehensibility. Stories give people hope. Stories give people a sense of connection and, and purpose. And people will pay for that. Yeah. Because it's a lot easier to get sucked into somebody else's narrative and pay them pay them for the privilege of dragging you along behind their craziness like a like a um, water skier behind a, a, an outboard than it is to actually do the challenging work of self actualization yeah. and uh, becoming not just a story that you're part of but an identity you've achieved. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think it's exacerbated by the fact that, you know, if someone told a, a story, but nobody was listening, you know, it's, it's, I mean, it does less damage than if a hundred people listen to it and take it to heart. And I think that because specifically because, you know, the way you phrase it was so perfect that scientists are the new priests that we look to, you know, like back in the, in the old day, Oh, is it going to rain? Oh, I don't know. Shake a stick at the cloud. Oh, it, you know, the gods tell me it's going to rain uh, and you have to pay you know, half a farm for that information. Um, I think that because they have a platform to speak of, like like people idolize them and hold them up, you know, in the, the in in their minds that it it is prime ground for rampant corruption. Um, and, well, and, and of course, priests would give you a sense of safety in the face of death. Yeah. Right. If you if you're gonna die, you'll go to heaven. You'll be reunited with your relatives. Ah, <laughs> you'll go. You know, you'll you'll live forever uh, in in the arms of of uh, God and so on. And so priests would reduce your anxiety around death in return for money, and not just money. I mean, a lot of people genuinely in the priesthood believed uh, these um, these perspectives. And scientists, you know, if, if you're this is why I started with this, right? If your father died of some illness and you've got anxiety about it, well, you give money to the scientist who's going to promise you a cure or promise to work on a cure, and uh, that reduces your anxiety in the face of death. Um, but both are just the illusion of control uh, if the science is not rigorous. Yeah, absolutely. Let me give you some uh, facts, and I'm sure you know this, but for the, um, the listenership and watchership as a whole, and we'll put links to this. Um, so, I mean, the, the pharmaceutical industry with regards to psychiatrists, uh, the, the, the amount of corruption there is, in my view, completely off the charts. And we've had Robert Whitaker on this show twice to talk about it, so uh, you can do a search for, for that. But um, according to this uh, writer... Uh, and again, we'll put the link to it. It says, there are increasing concerns these days about scientific misconduct... Hundreds of papers are being pulled from the scientific record for falsified data, for plagiarism, and for a variety of other reasons that are often never explained. Sometimes it's honest mistake. It's an honest mistake, but it is estimated that 70% of the retractions are based on some form of scientific misconduct. Oh, yeah. And that is important. Uh, the retraction watch, uh, you can look it up. Uh, every day, there are one or two new examples of research that has been quietly withdrawn, right? Because it comes out in a fanfare and it disappears in a midnight fog. Mm. 
And that is uh, pretty important. Um, it, it, of course, is god-awfully worse in the uh, softer sciences. I mean, it's bad enough in the hard sciences. But um, somebody who was, you know, a group that was curious um, took a bunch of psychology studies that were sort of, I think, big and leading in the field and so on and tried to reproduce them. And over half of them failed to be reproducible. Only 39 of the 100 replication attempts were successful. 39 That's out insane. of 100. 39 out of 100. 97% of the original studies found a significant effect. Only 36% of replication studies found significant results. Now, you could keep going and that number would probably go down. As you know, there's some coincidences from the 97 that show up in the 36 and it would decay from there. Now, this is a mature human discipline. Psychology. Oh, it's got statistics. It's got peer review. It's got academic boards that are supposed to approve and disapprove of certain things. There's a lot of things that are supposed to be there to keep corruption out of these kinds of things, right? And uh, 39% success rate. That is appalling. Terrifying. Yeah, it's, it's uh, and you know, <clears throat> especially, I guess, in this field, when you're making drugs, especially drugs against diseases that people have a particular soft spot to, like you were, you were saying. It's, it's, um, I, I, it's just, I don't know, you know, scientists aren't these fluffy angels that never lie. Um, and I honestly have felt, you know, um, that going through that experience in that previous lab, in the first lab where I first landed, um, has taught me to look so intensely at the details and think critically about everything, the way they're presenting data, um, what are their controls, what what haven't they used, you know, and, and you, you know, like you were saying, uh, what was it, 37% is not reproducing? 36%. 36%. You know, I didn't realize it was that low, but I do know that sometimes when I'm reading a paper, oh, okay, they took A and B under these conditions to make C. Oh, it's published in one of the top journals. Okay, I'm going to do it myself. I do it, and I try it 50 different times, and it doesn't work. And, you know, it's like, well, I don't know. Maybe I do need to pay a priest to shake a stick at my round bottom because it's not, it's not working out for me. Hey, you know who's another pretty guy? <laughs> Dr. Oz. Yeah. <laughs> Ever heard of this dude? Yeah, this is that Wizard of Oz, no? No, Dr. Oz is, uh, he's got a show. It goes in like 118 countries and millions of people watch it. This is from the LA Times, Los Angeles Times by Karen Kaplan. She, she writes, what do real world doctors have to say about the advice dispensed on the Dr. Oz show? Well, less than one third of it can be backed up by even modest medical evidence. If that sounds alarming, consider this. Nearly four in ten of the assertions made on the hit show appear to be made on the basis of no evidence at all. 
The researchers who took it upon themselves to fact-check Dr. Oz and his on-air guests were able to find legitimate studies related to another 11% of the recommendations made on the show. However, in these cases, the recommendations ran counter to the medical literature. <sighs> uh, you know, and it's, uh, I, I, I did a couple of, um, sorry, this sounds random, but I'll, I'll tie it back. Uh, I worked at, at, for the government um, in, in, in the ocean sciences. I was doing some m marine chemistry with them. And it wasn't quite to this extent, but I, everyone has this mind, mind frame, you know. It essentially goes something like this. This person wants to give us money to look at uh, man-made, human-made uh, climate change and how it's accelerating. You have to like put the, the borders around your experiment, so to speak, so that it fits with the person who's giving us funding. Um, I don't know. It, 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 uh, people respond to incentives. Yeah. Right. This is, this is, a, you know, people will say to me, um, and I'm sorry to repeat this for those who've heard it before. I say, Steph, why don't you, why don't you, uh, put ads in your show? It's because I love my audience. I care about my audience. I want to be in the business, not of delivering your eyeballs to advertisers or your ears to advertisers. I want to be in the business of delivering philosophy to you. And as soon as advertisers come into the equation, I know enough about human beings to know that people respond to incentives. I am a human being. I will respond to incentives. I may fight it. I may say this. I may say that. But if I no longer have a diffuse set of anonymous donors to this show, but instead a concentrated set of economically self-interested advertisers, my focus is going to shift to them. And I don't know the degree to which I'll just do, like I simply couldn't. Because the moment the question comes up in your head, well, if I say this, is it going to upset an advertiser? You have a different show. Absolutely. You have a different show. Who pays the piper calls the tune. This used to be very well known. And now it's somehow not. Because people think that somehow the dispensation of government cash is somehow different from the dispensation of corporate cash. Mm -hmm. And it's true. It is different. It's worse. Because with corporate cash, at least there has to be some kind of outcome. And as far as, you know, I'll just finish off with this Dr. Is Oz thing, because um, a bunch of researchers randomly selected 80 of these recommendations from each show and looked to see what evidence, if any, could back them up. Only 21% of the recommendations on the Dr. Oz show could be supported by what the researchers considered believable evidence. I like that, <laughs> believable. Another 11% was supported by somewhat believable evidence evidence. There's another show called The Doctors. 32.5% uh, was supported by believable evidence. Another 20% were backed by somewhat believable evidence. Good or so-so evidence contradicted 11% of the claims made on Dr. Oz and 13% of the claims made on The Doctors. For both shows combined, 40% of the recommendations mentioned a specific benefit of the intervention being touted. The size of the benefit was discussed in fewer than 20% of cases. Possible harms or side effects came up in less than 10%. Uh, it came up less than 10% of the time, and potential conflicts of interest were mentioned in less than 1% of the cases. The researchers, sorry, the whole exercise left the researchers to ponder, quote, whether we should expect medical talk shows to provide more than entertainment. <laughs> 
entertainment. That's brutal. Well, you know, and of course, this stuff was published, and um, his show is, uh, as far as I understand it, still running. In the same way that if prayer doesn't work, people still go to church because it's not about prayer. It's it's about having a narrative that has a positive uh, emotional response for you. Yeah. So you're not, uh, you are not, I mean, you're not far off when you talk about this this kind of corruption. Yeah, and that, I mean, I guess and it uh, really puts light on what it honestly means to be an academic if you want to be a successful academic. I had it in my mind, oh, I want to be a professor. I want to have my own lab. Um, I want <laughs> You know what's going to happen then, right? Well, I, I, tell me. Well, you're going to be offered the same deal. With the same bribery, so to speak, with the same, we can make or break you. Yeah. I mean, if you become successful as a scientist, my guess is, um, well, you are going to be offered the same incentives and punishments as everyone else is offered and that just about everyone else falls for. Yeah. But you will be heavily invested in your career and a much, and you'll have kids and uh, you'll be married and you'll have mortgage payments and you'll have car payments and you'll want to go to Hawaii <laughs> and it'll be like, well, I can find some way to justify this at some level in my own mind. So sure, I'm willing to go along. You know, I'll take this little bit of money, I'll give them what they want and I'll use all this money for great good. Just around the corner, <laughs> right? I mean, the, the, the path to corruption is usually not being pushed off a cliff, right? Yeah. It's a slippery slope, right? A little bit here and there, a little bit here and there. You know, when they, when they tra- to take an extreme example, when they train torturers, they don't just bring some guy in, hand him some pliers and put him over someone, right? They, they have them as a guard stationed down at the end of the hallway. They can barely hear anything. And then they move them up the hallway a little bit. And then they have them guard outside the door. And then they have them guard inside the door. And then they say, listen, can you pass me the pliers, uh, and then did you don't touch him, just clean him down. And then can you just hold this while I use the pliers? And then eventually, can you just do the pliers? And then the torture leaves, and this guy, step by step by step, finds himself standing over some squirming, half-rag, broken, smashed-up vestige of a human being that looks like an extra out of the Doom franchise, and uh, wondered how that he got there. Well, how do you get there? The journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step, and the journey to the destruction of a human soul always occurs in increments. So how would you even get to the position? of having a lab in a corrupt environment. I'm not saying it's all corrupt, obviously, yeah. obviously. Yeah. But that, the, the, that potential is, is there. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I guess now that you mentioned it, it, uh, it brings forth to mind, um, I was watching a documentary on Netflix about the Colombian drug lords, and they would always tell them, you know, lead or silver. Like either you take yeah. the bribe or I'm going to kill you and kill all your family. <laughs> Like it's yeah, ridiculous. that stuff look pretty good, right? And also, you know, the thing is that you know that if you take a stand, my career in science is over. Well, no, just to take the Mexican drug logs, for example. Yeah. Let's say that you say, "Nope, I'm going to take a stand," and maybe you don't get killed. Maybe your family doesn't get killed. What have you changed? Yeah. What have you changed? What will change? If you take a stand, 
And that is one of the great challenges because it really becomes tough to say, well, I want to put my, my life, my family in danger, or I can get all this comfortable money. And what's going to change either way? Like I go round and round and round in my head when it comes to corruption. Ooh, it's a merry-go-round of doom. Drives me crazy. Ah, the people in Venezuela, they voted these socialists in, so they're responsible. Well, but they were trained by all these socialist probably teachers and all this kind of stuff, and they don't know any better. And, you know, one of Hillary Clinton's advisors has got a Nobel Prize in economics and was very keen on socialism. So are you some kid from the back alley of Caracas being told to vote for socialists by a Nobel Prize winning economist? You're going to say, no, I won't because X... And um, then I say, well, you know, the IQ is kind of lower in that country, whether environmental or genetic, who knows, doesn't really matter. The fact is that it is. So maybe they're not capable of making better choices, but they are capable of making better choices if they're taught well, but they're taught badly. I mean, just go round and round. Yeah. Just go round and round. I can't, can't solve it, right? And of course, you could say, well, the adults who voted for it and avoided facts and were greedy and let their greed run away with them wanted something for nothing. Okay, then they can be punished. But what about the people who voted against this stuff? And what about their kids? And right, they're not responsible. Anyway. You don't need a tour of that particular labyrinth of my brain, but it's there. Yeah, and I guess um, when I'm faced, and that's exactly it, I guess, that it's that helplessness or that seemingly helplessness where I look at all this and I'm like, like this is fucked up and there's nothing okay, I Okay, but listen, man, how many people have contributed enormously to science without being part of the scientific establishment? I'm thinking of some guy who worked in a patent office. I mm, help me out. Einstein. Oh, uh, Albert Einstein. Oh, General I, theory of relativity <laughs> developed while he worked in a patent office, right? Right, right. I uh, arguably, I would say that uh, Ayn Rand contributed an enormous amount to philosophical discussions in the 20th century, even into the 21st century, while not being part of the professional, academic-based philosophical Ivy League club. Yeah. Because there is, there's this mistake that we make a lot, which is to conflate the state with the thing. And, you know, people say, well, who's going to build the roads without the state? Well, people build the roads. You don't need the state for that. And people say, well, who's going to help the poor? Well, people help the poor. This idea that the state manifestation of the thing is somehow synonymous with the thing itself is a huge mistake. The state manifestation of science is not science. Mm. It's not science. It's not the same as science, right? So there's massive contributions people can make to science without being in the science state industry, right? The industrial state science complex. Yeah, I see what you mean. Because you think, well, if I want to be a scientist, well, what do I have to do? I have to become part of the state science thing, right? Yeah. Well, um, you don't. If I want to make an impact, (laughs) I still get messages from people who are like, Dude, you totally should have been a philosophy professor. Right. Yeah, because then I could meet 
I could maybe train a thousand people my whole career in philosophy. As opposed to what I think I'm doing now, which is at least reaching a lot more people than I ever could have as a scientist. So you say, oh, well, philosophy, that's a, you know, that's an academic discipline. You've got to get a PhD. You got to, what? Well, why? What if you could do science without the state, without the funding? Where would that funding come from? I'm sorry, I, I... Well, where does my funding come from? Hmm. That's right. I invite listeners to my house and sell their kidneys on eBay. <laughs> come to my house. <laughs> We're having kidneys for dinner. Yeah. Um, no, where does my funding come from? It comes from people who care about what I'm doing freedomainradio.com slash donate for those who want to help out. It's uh, crowdfunding, crowdsourcing. Right. Right. With the internet now, Kickstarter, you name it. For the internet now, look, if Anita Sarkeesian can get money for not producing videos, I'm sure you can get money for producing cures. Right. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. You know, the internet now has given us the remarkable capacity to really go outside of ordinary structures. And this idea that we have to automatically plug ourselves into institutions that were all developed prior to the internet is not a rational or empirical approach to the problem of how to get money for what you love. Right? I mean, you know, think tanks, right? Yeah think tanks where they produce all of the papers, they produce all of these arguments, and sometimes they produce more populist type of articles. Well, I'm, I've not done the study, but I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that it's fairly, it's fairly possible to predict the position of a think tank based upon the position of its major donors. What do you think? Do you think that would be a testable hypothesis? Oh, absolutely. Because <laughs> if you're really into open borders... You are not going to fund our good friends the Center for Immigration Studies, or Center for the Studies of Immigration. If you are really anti-Trump, you are not going to be funding a lot of people who say would debunk the lies and myths told about Donald Trump, right? If you want to do it, God, can you imagine, imagine doing it where you're facing the donors, your actual individual people who've given you money. Imagine doing that rather than some blood-stained, corrupt, ring-based, smoky wallet, acidic, soul-eating government cash and all of the mess that comes with it. Why not just go straight to the, fee- the people? You know, the, the movie Angry Birds couldn't find any Hollywood backing. They raised the money themselves, which is why the movie looks like the way it does rather than what Hollywood would have turned it into, which would have been a kumbaya, we can all get along, everybody hug together, all at once, do si And you're calling into a show, I don't take donor money. I mean, it's so funny, I did this review of Doom, like, I bet he got paid for this. <laughs> I didn't. It's just funny. It's just, he's a shill for her. It's like, nope, 
I may be wrong, but I ain't a shell. But um, just you got to think outside the box. You don't have to take the world that was handed to our forefathers and say, well, we got to plug ourselves into that because, right? Yeah. Maybe you won't get millions of dollars right away, but I bet you you do some crowdfunding thing and you come up with some significant success. You can start to divert money away from all that other crap, right? Yeah. Wow. To be honest, I'm a little embarrassed. I didn't think it through. (laughs) You know, and I understand that. Listen, way back at the beginning of the show, I did mull over whether to sell podcasts, whether to sell books. And I did sell my books for a short time. And then I decided not to for a variety of reasons. So I understand this. Um, The freemium idea or the idea of um, crowdsourcing, crowdfunding, and so on. People like to give money for what they care about and what they believe in. They really do. And I think, I think that you will have a better, happier, more effective, more powerful, more honest, less corruptible career by going straight to the people. And isn't that exciting to have at least that as a possibility? And you can be your own boss. You don't have to be in charge. You don't have to have someone in charge of you telling you what to do, what to focus on. You don't have a lot of grand paperwork to fill out. Oh, God, right? You don't have to kiss babies and press the flesh while you go to the people who deliver the funding and you don't have to follow their agendas and freedom, right? That's the way you want to live, baby. That's the way you want to live. Yeah. To be honest, I'm speechless because I never thought about it that way Uh, as – like I said, as embarrassing as it is, but it's, uh, yeah, I guess because we're molded into thinking. Well, you, everybody wants to get you on the train track that leads you to subjugation. Oh, yeah. Look, this train hack, it's all downhill. We'll put you on the train track. We'll tell you what to do. Here's how to show up. Here's what to do. Follow this. Fill out this form. Do this experiment. Don't spill that Petri dish and we'll get him. Boom. You're on a train track. But a train track only ever leads you where other people have built it to go. When you get on someone's train track, you surrender autonomy, obviously. You're in a helicopter, you're in a car, you can go a bunch of different places. You're in a train track, you go one place, which is wherever they built the train track to go. Now, it's easy. Woo-hoo, look at that. I don't have to be an entrepreneur. I'm just going to plug myself in like the 11th caboose on a CN train. I'm on a train track. (laughs) And that's tempting. I understand that. But, and look, I can guarantee you this, my friend, you are not the only person who's upset by corruption in science. You are not the only person who's chomping like a ferret in an overturned moldy aquarium to get out of whatever hellhole they're currently stuck in, where they wake up every morning dreading to go to work because they can't figure out whether they should tell the truth and shame the devil or try to continue to plod along and pay off their student loans and be honest and have integrity later. Tomorrow never comes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're, we're, we're doing research into figuring out how to crowdfund research that nobody's doing. You know, I'm dying to find out the prevalence of the warrior gene in populations other than whites and African-Americans. Dying to find, I mean, God, wouldn't that be fantastic? And 
there's research I'd like to do around unparenting versus discipline-based parenting versus peaceful parenting. I'd like some facts. We've got a whole list of the research projects we want to crowdfund at some point. Because we want some answers. So, yeah. Isn't that cool? Yeah. Life-changing, baby. <laughs> That's why I'm half singing everything because I started the show with a song. But anyway. <laughs> no, yeah, that, uh, that makes a lot of sense. And it's almost as if, yeah, I mean, we've been it's been inculcated in us ever since we started uh well since i started my undergrad you know your professors are gods you are lucky to get a whiff of their farts you know let alone be working in their labs um and any good professor would not want that uh, that approach right that that to me is grandiosity and narcissism yeah people who want to be worshipped to that degree are not healthy and barely sane, in my humble opinion. Yeah, I would definitely agree with you. I mean, I, I, I hope that I've never, ever come across, just do what I say, because I'm right. I have the show and you don't. And so just obey. I mean, that would just be terrible, terrible, terrible philosophy. The whole point is to empower other people with the capacity to think, not to have them think like me. Because the moment you're thinking like me, you ain't thinking. And uh, certainly to assume that I'm right about everything would be completely disastrous for everyone and everything involved. And, um, yeah, of course, I mean, people who want that kind of, and they do have a ridiculous amount of power, right? They have a ridiculous amount. They can fail you. They can pass you. They can recommend you. They can not recommend you. They can hire you as a TA. They can not hire you as a TA. It's kind of arbitrary because there's no market, right? Like, I mean, if there's a market, then the manager has less arbitrary control over who he hires and promotes. Yeah. Right. So if 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 there's take a silly example, if you're a restaurant owner, there's two waiters, one you really like, but is a bad waiter, and one you don't like who's a great waiter, and the people love him and come just to interact with him, who are you gonna hire? Who are you gonna keep if you gotta cut? Yeah, the guy you don't like who brings in the dough. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, the number of I mean, there are directors who hate working with certain actors, but they just know that those actors are able to open the film, so that's what's gonna happen. So, but, but, but in, in academia, there's no market driven because the people are not paying more than a couple of points on their total education costs, right? Well, maybe it's different in the States, but um, this, um, yeah, just jump the tracks, man. It is really, really liberating. It's alarming, of course, because, you know, government schools in particular is all designed to get you into the sense that you're just a corpse on a conveyor belt, dead meat on a rolling landscape, runaway train, never coming back. And so, you know, what is it with school? Well, you sit here, you move here, you move here. Now you stop interrupting with this. You've got to go now to work on this. And now it's time for your break. Go out. Even if you're in the middle of working something, you might be in the middle of the game. Get the hell back in. Sit down here. Listen to this. I'm going to write this on the whiteboard. Now do this. Read this book tonight. Come back tomorrow. This test is on Friday. The fuck? Yeah. I mean, that's not being on the tracks. That's beating the soul <laughs> out of people with a railway tie. Oh, it is so true. You know, in, in, when I was working, and this reminds me of a story. When I was working in, in one of the labs of my undergrad, there was a graduate student who had just finished her degree. And <clears throat> she, 
she told, you know, the, the prof, uh, whom we were both working for at the time. Oh, you know, like I have my, my place, my apartment, uh, until the end of August. And at this point it was like April, I suppose. Uh, can I stay on for a couple months just to finish a couple things, you know, tie up loose ends. And, uh, obviously I need to live so you can pay me. And he paid her for the first month and then told her that he wasn't happy with the results and that he wasn't going to pay her until the end of August. Unless, like the only the only way that he would pay her was at the end of August and if she produced good results. Um, and obviously, my friend uh, unfortunately had to move back to her country of origin. Wait, wait, what does that mean? Good results? <laughs> that sounds a little sinister. Give me the results I need. Maybe I'll throw some shekels. Yeah. Way. Well, that's basically it. It was like they were looking at, uh, you know, whether like we're trying to crystallize proteins. Um, if like if you, but it's a it's a it's black magic. It's really difficult. Nobody really knows how. Um, and he was like, "Well, unless you can get crystals of these different proteins, I'm not going to pay." <laughs> it was insane. And it's and it, you know what? And it and it really that that story came to mind when you were saying there's no like market for it. There's no accountability. This guy can pull this sort of stuff. Screw this. Uh, Right, grow over, and nobody gives. A now Im- imagine, but imagine, imagine this world instead, right? Imagine where this is just off the top of my head, but imagine this: imagine the situation where it's the insurance companies who are paying the researchers to reduce the costs of treatment for particular illnesses. Kaching, kaching, cash based, right? So if if you can find a cheaper way to cure someone, that's great then the insurance company will fund your research and so on. Or if you can find a way to keep someone alive rather than having them die, then the insurance company doesn't have to pay out the life insurance for the death, right? Mm-hmm. So they're going to be all over you because they're giving you money in order to save themselves money. Cheaper treatments, no death payouts. Mm-hmm. So you damn well better have your data right. And if you don't, they'll sue the shit out of you. Breach of contract, falsification, fraud. Because they're giving you money in order to get money back. Yeah? The problem is all this money's flowing to a bunch of scientists. Nobody's invested in getting the money back. Nobody's invested on making sure it was a good investment. But they love cocktail parties, and they don't mind pretty young doctors. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and that is a sad reality. Yeah. We have um, uh, Dr. Jim Penman doing tons of research, funding it himself. You can go to biohistory.org. The research slash the research, the dash research. Uh, tons of people are, are doing this kind of stuff. And look, don't feel bad for not thinking about it. I mean, why would you? you? You you've been on a train track since you were four years old. And now I'm saying you don't have to be a train. I'm like, well, with no train tracks, I was thinking that's one. Right. <laughs> yeah. But that would be my suggestion. Now, you do have another question, which I would like to discuss uh, maybe maybe briefly. Sure. You are in possession of information that can save lives, right? Yeah, yeah. If this, yeah, I mean, regarding your previous lab, yeah, sure. I mean, if I don't say anything and this guy, for one reason or another, gets his drug into clinical trials, people are going to die. Because okay, no, I, I, we, we. That's why I discussed the stakes at the beginning because I wanted to circle back to this at the end. Right. Right. So this is a reality. And what you do about it, I mean, 
I, everybody knows what you should do about it and you know what you should do about it, how you go about it. I don't know, but I just really wanted to circle back because I want you to be enthusiastic about the future and have an option other than sitting on these squalid train tracks to hell. But at the same time, you have been cursed with knowledge that can save lives. And what you do with that, I don't know. But I think if you do nothing with it, um, that's not good. Yeah. All right. So don't, don't give me a plan, right? I, because, I mean, that's a lot to ask. But I just really wanted to circle back and, and mention that, that once you're in possession of that kind of information, um, rightly or wrongly, you do have some kind of obligation. And uh, that is important. And uh, it is uh, dangerous work. It is dangerous work to expose corruption. Um, so if you can meet with someone who you can talk to in confidence, who's maybe had some experience with this before, uh, who's blazed a trail with this kind of stuff, or maybe, you know, do a search for scientific corruption and uh, people who publish journals or maintain websites about this, I'm sure will speak with you off the record or privately about steps you could, there's tons of things that you could do. But if you are in possession of a knowledge of this kind of corruption, particularly where lives are at stake, I think something has to happen, even if it's anonymous, even if it's through a third party, even something, right? But I think something has to happen. Yeah, I yeah, I totally agree with you. Yeah, and I and yeah, yeah, I, yeah, and it's a certain responsibility that um, I suppose in my mind, you know, it, it was it's either academia or you're going to be a homeless person for the rest of your life. <laughs> Um, right, and that's not much of a free will scenario. Yeah, that's there, right. right. And it, yeah, yeah, and I guess that's kind of why it left me so paralyzed at the face of this great injustice, because I was thinking, well, I could be the good guy and blow the whistle and talk to someone, okay, but I'm going to be a homeless person for the rest of my life. You know, I mean, it's a, obviously it's a, it doesn't follow, but it's just, uh, yeah, anyway. I'm rambling, but I agree with no, you. No, no, listen. One of the reasons that I wanted to move into philosophy is that I found in certain areas of business there was some challenges to my integrity, to put it as nicely as I can. Yeah. And uh, they were somewhat hard to take. And um, so it's one of the reasons why I wanted to um, branch out to a more sort of directly customer focused and crowdfunded situation. Uh, crowdfunding is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, I really shudder to think of what directions this show would have taken had it not been for my relentless or our relentless focus on satisfying the needs and preferences of you, the listener and the watcher. That's the gig. That's the goal. That is how I measure the success of what it is that I'm doing. Not theoretical breakthroughs, those are fine, those are great, but in terms of people actually changing their lives based upon virtues and values that without us they would not have found. And that is um, what makes it worthwhile, uh, that is what makes it so powerful, and that's what makes it so compelling, and this is why people keep listening and why the show keeps growing. Yeah. All right, I don't want this to be an ad for myself, more so <laughs> that you know this is an opportunity that you can also pursue and connect with yeah absolutely yeah thanks um well definitely lots to think about for sure lots to to do lots to do keep us posted on how it goes i will i will and sorry just as a side note I, this is totally unrelated to what i what what it was but uh um i listened i remember there was a call-in show and the guy was saying oh women who don't who, who stay at home and don't work or whatever. It was a Swedish fella. I don't really remember. 
and you made the case of, oh, you know, if you're such a retard, shouldn't parenting be so easy? Anyway, whatever. Um, I it, it really um, solidified for me that, you know, uh, that parenting, um, basically that the government and their agendas and what they're pushing are not always the truth. So uh, thanks for opening my eyes to that. Uh, you're welcome. And I hope that uh, pays off if and when you choose to become a dad. And if you do, I'm sure you'll be great. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you so much for, for the, the, the talk, Steph. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure, my friend. Thank you so much for calling in and very best of luck to you as you go forward. Thank you very much. I'll talk to you later. All right. All right. Up next is Jesse. Jesse writes in and says, I'm 27 years old, half indigenous and half Italian. My question is, to what effect can we morally hold the government accountable to the abuse Native people have been subjected to in the past? What is the solution to our cultural problems, and is it moral to cut government social services programs designed to help impoverished Natives after all the government damage? That's from Jesse. Well, hello, Jesse. How are you doing? Hello. How are you? I'm well. Thank you. How are you? Uh, I'm doing pretty good. All right. So half Italian, half indigenous. Quite a witch's brew, I must say. <laughs> I've not heard of that one before, but uh, all right. Um, and do, do you want to mention, like, uh, for those who don't know this god-awful history uh, of this attempt at enforced assimilation that occurred, I assume that's what you're referring to when you're talking about your grandmother. Yeah. Do you want to help people to understand what the government did to the native populations uh, back in the day? Um, okay. Uh, well, let me just ask you a question, Steph, or sure. give you a, a kind of line of reasoning. Imagine that the government comes in and takes your children away from you and then puts them to their own, uh, their own schooling. So, and at that time, uh, there was a lot about Christianity and teaching them to really get rid of their traditions and, you know, basically telling them that they're savages and they need to conform and assimilate. So if that happened to you and, you, and that breaks up your family, what kind of, uh, like, how would you react to it? What would be the best way to react to it? Well, um, and so you're talking about the, the, the assimilation Res programs that were occurring, right? Residential schooling, yeah. So, yeah, young children would be ripped away from their families and put into 24-7 government schools and they were attempted to, there was an attempt made to change them from historical indigenous cultures to general Christendom and there was, um, you know, massive, massive amounts of abuse. I'm thinking in particular out um, in Newfoundland, I think it was, but there was significant uh, amounts of abuse that were occurring with the amount of, of power that the government teachers had over the natives. Is that, is that a fair way to summarize your understanding of it? Um, pretty, pretty much exactly, but uh, it wasn't just the children who were oppressed. I, as I was saying, uh, my, my grandmother's mother, so my great-grandmother, she, uh, she, she had her, her spouse chosen for her, and he was a mountain ranger who actually who had some kids with her and then kind of just said goodbye and had another family. And so my great-grandmother was left to uh, raise her kids by herself. And my, grand my grandmother told me this one story how she, well, she said that she remembered how she used to try to run out of the school 
and go see her mom who was dying from breast cancer. And she just remembers she remembered being, you know, taken away every single time and brought back to the school and, you know, forced not to be able to see her, her dying mom. So it, it was quite like, it was a tremendous amount of uh, oppression going on. And I think that there is an enormous amount that can be learned from this. Look, I mean, it, it's a god-awful, I mean, that there are no words that I could possibly summon that would encapsulate a tiny percentage of the horrors of this program. Um, it was family wrecking, it was culture wrecking, it was soul wrecking, and I, I, I like the degree to which it's had a ripple effect. I mean, you're talking about Canadians. So the degree to which you're, it has had a ripple effect on dysfunction within the Aboriginal or Native communities in Canada is beyond calculation. I mean, it was a, a sword swipe through the very heart of the family structure and the cultural legacy of the aboriginals. And it was, I mean, vicious and evil and brutal beyond measure. And, and the only thing that like when, when, when I stare at, at that kind of horror, which, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at from a fair distance, obviously compared to what your family has gone through, my friend. But when I look at that kind of horror, the only thing that I can do is sort of grit my teeth and recognize that, the best that can be done is to extract lessons from it to avoid any kind of repetition of those mistakes. That's the only thing that I can find that makes anything valuable out of such a degree of mm, shocking horror. Mm -hmm. My grandmother, she was part of a class action lawsuit a few years ago, and she was able to get some money back from the government to you know, some sort of reparation for the, the yeah. trauma that she was put through through it. Yeah. And it, it was around $40,000, which she then used to help uh, pay off her house. And Right. Right. I'd just like to say that uh, although there is dysfunction in my family, uh, I'm nowhere near the level of family abuse that I see. You know, I'm, I'm kind of at a midpoint between in the spectrum of, you know, happy, healthy, functional Native Americans compared to, you know, the worst. Right. And there is something, you know, I'll tell you this. I mean, there, there's something that I find enormously powerful about Aboriginals, in, in particular, I mean, Americans, and, you know, you can, of course, tell me the degree to which this you know, spills north of a border that, of course, to Aboriginals is entirely artificial, but nonetheless is is there. You know, there's um. You know, there's always a question to be asked uh, about the Aboriginal experience in the United States, and it's a small component of it, but it's it's I think quite important. Which is, they would not be slaves, mm -hmm. right? I mean, the 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 white people. I guess everyone around the world, but in this particular locale, the white people wanted slaves, right? Question is, why did they go to Africa? I mean, there were Native Americans all around. Why did they go to Africa? Well, they went to Africa because the Natives simply refused to be slaves. Yeah. Um, that they would rather die than be slaves. My, uh, my auntie was telling me that the Native Americans... Actually, I should just stop and just say that uh, the... The term that we prefer is indigenous people. Indigenous? Aboriginal. I appreciate that. 
I appreciate that. But as she was telling me, uh, the invention of the Mohawk was actually a way to to tease bounty collectors who would scalp natives for you know for the bounty. And so we invented the Mohawk to tease them, you know, because you know, look at my head; it's more easy, easy to carry my, my scalp because I shaved it for you. Come and get it. So, wow, that is that is a screw you attitude that I can't help but admire. <laughs> um, so it's pretty badass. Yeah. Yeah, and that is, uh, you know, that is one of the great uh, noble uh, resistances in human history is the degree to which indigenous people, as you say, just simply refuse to become slaves. Uh, and, uh, you know, if, if uh, everyone had done that, there'd be no such thing as slavery. And I just think that's uh, a noble uh, and passionate dedication to freedom. I mean, indigenous peoples just did not, they did not submit to captivity. And uh, that is, uh, that's an incredible feat. It's an incredible strength of will, an incredible dedication to uh, liberty that I've got to tell you, I just find, I find uh, inspiring, if that makes sense. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Sure. Now, lessons that could potentially be learned from these disastrous situations. Uh, I say lessons because, you know, we'll get to sort of government role and I haven't sort of, I don't want to forget your question, but, you know, I sort of wanted to mention um, what I think is important. Okay. So, what can we learn? First of all, the lesson is that integration is hard, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a ridiculous thing to say because, you know, given the depth of the, the destruction that we're talking about, like an attempt to, to destroy a culture and remake people in the Marxist model, right, in the socialist model, in the environmentalist model, which is, you know, well, you know, you raise these Aboriginal kids as, you know, white kids, as Christian kids, you raise these indigenous kids as, as white kids, and they'll be just like white kids. How did that work out? <laughs> Not very good. Well, it was disastrous. It was disastrous. And I'm not trying to hijack this for my own particular focus at the moment, but I, I, don't, I don't think it's unfair to say that this is a lesson for Europe with regards to the migrant crisis. Mm-hmm. Right? E- even if Europeans took the kids of the migrants, I'm not saying they should, obviously, right? but if the European governments took the kids of the migrants and raised them as white Christian kids, it, it would be worse than anything that could be imagined that might otherwise occur. The integration is not going to happen. Right. And just the level of bitterness that uh, indigenous people have, especially the young ones today, it's just incurable. It's just, it's just pure poison. And I think I was listening to you, and I think you said that uh, a victim mentality leads to a mentality of entitlement. And so uh, all the, a lot of Aboriginal people, in, including myself in a small phase of my life, I just felt like I was owed reparations. Hell yeah, I totally get that. Mm-hmm. I totally get that. I mean, wasn't like you invited Whitey over. Yeah. Right? I mean, uh, and so I, I completely understand that. And this is the counterintuitive lesson, I think, that can be gleaned out of all of this stuff, which is it was, in general, the government 
that's screwed over the indigenous people. And I, I'm sorry to use the term screwed over. I can't say destroyed because you're all still here, but that that uh, really f- fragmented and, and harmed the indigenous population. It was the government that did that. And, and religion, now, the Baptists. And the Angelic- but could the Baptists have done it without the power of the state? Well, even if the government wasn't there, they might make some kind of attempts on it, right? Well, yeah, okay, but without the government, I mean, obviously indigenous populations fought amongst each other as well, and there's always a human tendency to want to impose one's own way of life on other people. That's part of the general war of human tribes that has occurred throughout all corners of human history. You know, there are certainly some records that seem to have shown up now that there was, prior to the current indigenous population, there was a previous indigenous population that there was conflict with. I mean, that conflict between tribes... And I don't by that I don't mean necessarily war and bloodshed and, and burying the, the dead or whatever. I mean by that just the, the, the conflict and the, the sparks and the frisson that can occur between competing ways of life. To me, that's part of general human progress. And okay. so but without the power of the state, I think that that process could have been I think that the process of, of interaction between indigenous and European populations without the power of the state could have been much more beneficial. I mean, look, I, I, tell me if I'm way off base here and, you know, I'm, I'm treading with as much cultural, control, cultural sensitivity as I can. So tell me if I go astray. But the Europeans did bring some pretty cool stuff to the indigenous populations of North America, certainly over time. Right. I mean, uh, you know, science, healthcare, and and um, the free market and, and some some stuff that, you know, there were certainly some aspects of that to native populations. But there was some benefits that came across with the Europeans and right. those negatives, sorry, those benefits could have accrued in a sort of more free environment, uh, in a non-state environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that there would have been, where benefits could have been exchanged, they would have been exchanged, and where conflict would have escalated, there could have been, you know, well, you stay over there and we stay over here kind of stuff, right? Yeah. It could have been to the potential somewhat enrichment of both cultures had the interactions occurred, and I'm sorry to lump indigenous cultures as one, if it's any consolation, I'm also, limp, I'm also putting all European cultures as one, but there could have been some beneficial interactions between the two cultures had it not been for the power of the state to enforce its will. I mean, you said being paid bounty. Who was paying the bounty? It was the right. state who paid uh-huh. the bounty, right? Who turned the indigenous populations into... Um, animals sometimes to be hunted and murdered. And this, it was the state who negotiated these treaties and these deals and then subsequent states or even the, sometimes the same politicians who then broke them. Now, if, if treaties, if private contracts had been signed, then the indigenous populations would have been able to appeal to a third party, we'll call it the state for the moment, for violations of those contracts. But when the state violates the contract or the treaty that it signs with you, where do you go? Exactly. Can't go anywhere. They say, oh, white men, you know, the cliche, white man speak with forked tongue, you know. As a, but, I mean, it's the state. And it speaks with forked tongues to his white people as much as anybody else, to Europeans as much as anybody else. Right. So, to me, the giant lesson of... of and, and the great tragedy is that these two cultures could have enriched each other. They did a little you bit. Know, I mean, yeah, it did to some degree. Transactions, yeah. It did to some degree. And the, the two cultures could have enriched each other to the benefit of both. However, 
the state, which was of course squarely in, under the control of the Europeans, was able to escalate the aggression to the point where, you know, it was fight or die for a lot of the indigenous populations in certain situations, right? Right. And so my, you know, my argument for indigenous populations would be something like this. Well, how's your relationship with the state been for the last four or 500 years? I would say pretty damn bad. Yeah. So why don't you boycott the state? Why don't you stop dealing with the state? Why don't you stop trying to get justice out of the state? It's sort of like an abusive relationship where you keep going back. Well, he beat me up, so now he's got to buy me a nice dinner. And I'm sorry to use those ridiculous analogies, but, you know, he's, he's going to buy me a diamond because he beat the crap out of me last week and he always feels bad afterwards, so I'm going to go back and get my diamond. You know, I, I think that that relationship is um, so uh, destructive, you know, and it's not something I just, I say to most people, if you can avoid interactions with the state, do so. Does that make any sense? It does. Absolutely. I, I hate the government, too. That's actually why I like you so much. But uh, oh, We have that in common, right? Yeah, and, and I, look, I have more in common with you than I do with most Europeans, if that, if that helps, you know, if we both dislike the government uh, as, and, and, and are very skeptical, to put it mildly, of its capacity to create social, productive social outcomes, then, you know, we're, we're brothers in the tribe of future freedoms. Yeah. Um, what, what's your opinion on the reservations? With, um, mm. with, all, with, you know, just with the, the, the freedom that reservations have and the lack of freedom that they have. Because people who live on the reservations, they aren't taxed. Mm. They get free benefits from the government. But, I mean, it's not like some private business sector has exploded there like you, you might think it would because it's, you know, a small portion of the free market down in one spot. And I, I just wanted to know what your opinion is on that. Oh, I mean, that's, that's a, look, I'm not much of an expert on this, so I'm just going to go with general principles okay. that I do not think, look, the, the average person, not the average non-indigenous person, let's say, who's, who's living in Canada is not responsible for what the government did. Right. And, and, you know, we could spend a whole show and not, you know, get much to scratch the surface. Right. Uh, in 19, just so people know, in 1933, British Columbia, which is, I guess, Canada's California, became one of two provinces to implement a clear eugenic sexual sterilization law. The province's Sexual Sterilization Act legislation um, was passed in 1933 and repealed in 1973. And so it is um, Compulsory Sterilization uh, Act uh, in Canada, 1973. Yeah, I was seven. I was seven, and this shit was going on. I mean, it's it's a uh, so. I thought of this many years ago, and and again, I submit to your expertise and experience. But culture is something that we have that's like a muscle, and muscles develop with resistance. In other words, there must there must be problems to be solved in order for culture to exist, in order for culture to be worthwhile. And my sort of concern with the reservation system is the degree to which it isolates indigenous populations from, you know, sort of mainstream society, which is, you know, not the end of the world, you know, I mean, 
got a fence between myself and my neighbor. <laughs> like that's not the end. But the problem is that by giving the quote free stuff, it makes culture non non functional, non relevant, non non valuable, non purposeful. Just sluggish, hey. Yeah, sluggish. Like, okay, so I'm I'm awake today. I don't have to worry about food. Uh, I've got free healthcare. I can go get free college if I want to. I've got free money rolling in. If the chief decides he likes me that day or whatever, so I have uh, all. And and so now what? And I think that aspect of of the isolation, and then the welfare state and i don't know of a nicer way to put it i mean it's not the best way to put it but it's also not wildly off the isolation plus the welfare state is one of the things that produces i think such horrific dysfunction uh in in these communities uh you know somebody wrote to me a while back ago and you can tell me if you think this is true um this was to do with america maybe it's somewhat to do with the canadian indigenous population as well but they're saying it's a wildly matriarchal society in that, you know, the men generally aren't that much around and it's a lot of single moms and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, ghettoization plus isolation plus welfare plus matriarchal societies, well, I can't think of anything that produces a more concentrated toxicity to uh, an environment. Right. And that combined with what, what I understand to be a genetic sensitivity to the effects of alcohol or a sort of inability to process alcohol the enzyme like there's this argument that says that that western europeans developed a a resistance to uh, alcohol poisoning because um water was dangerous to drink and also you could get a lot of nutrients from drinking beer uh, and and so on and so there is a susceptibility some susceptibility to alcoholism but not as rampant, but as far as I understand it, and again, I'm no geneticist, but as far as I understand it, the indigenous populations have uh, lacked some capacity to um, effectively process alcohol and thus seem to be much more susceptible to alcoholism. Um, and I think all of that combines to create a sort of, in a sense, a perfect storm of woeful destruction of an entire a culture, an entire way of life. And I, I just, you know, my experience uh, having visited a couple of reservations and, and scenes, I mean, it's, well, you know, right? I mean, it's, it's a mess. Yeah. And so it's on one of these situations where people are like, well, the government really screwed us over. So now we're going to go get restitution from the government. We're going to get free stuff from the government. And it's like, whoa, I think this cure is almost worse than the disease. But it sounds nice. And that's what's so. Well, it appeals to one's sense of justice. But the problem is there's no individual. Yeah. There's no individual that you can punish. You know, if, if some guy, you know, I don't know, crashes his car into the side of my house, okay, well, then I go to that guy and tell him to fix my house, right? Mm-hmm. But there's no individual that, that you can punish for what happened in these residential schools. I know you can go to the government and, and get angry at the government as if it's the same guy. It's not the same guy. Those guys are all dead. Long gone. It's like going after the third cousin in another province of the guy who crashed his car into my house and making his kids pay, right? I mean, 
that, that, that I don't think that the problem is, is we have this idea that the state is this thing and, and it did something wrong to us like an individual. So we're going to go back and we're going to get it to apologize and we're going to get it to give us resources like it's some individual and the same individual who did us wrong. But it's not. Those people are all long dead, all long gone. And even if they were still around, if you got them to admit fault and to pay up, all they do is borrow, print, or tax the money to pay, which means that people are punished who had no say in these residential schools, who had no say in how the government treats the indigenous populations. So the injustice just keeps rolling back and forth mm-hmm. because the state is considered to be the cause and the solution of all these kinds of problems. And how do and we... I think uh, this focus, this focus, sorry, so I'll shut up in a second, but the, the focus just on, well, we, you know, the state does it wrong, we're going to use the state to, to do... I mean, Similar things in the in the black population in, in the United States. Reparations, right? The state did us wrong. There was slavery, there was Jim Crow, and these things were terrible. Of course they were. So, so if the state does you wrong, how can the state make it right? Because there's no such thing as a state. So, sorry, you, you had a question. I really apologize, but go on. I was going to say, uh, I think we can both agree on the solution, but how do we make it seem less offensive to the indigenous people to get them on the right solution, on the right path, which is personal accountability. That's, that's really well, the hardest part yeah. of it. That is, um, yeah, that is, that is very tough. I mean, I, I, I don't have any huge answers for that. Philosophy. You know, I, I, I will speak from my own personal experience here. Uh, that's, that's the closest I can get to, to hopefully coming up with something useful, and hopefully it will be. But my personal experience, I've been wronged by people in my life. I'm sure you have been as well. Mm-hmm. And I have, like everyone who's been wronged, had thoughts, fantasies, dreams of chasing the people down who've wronged me and making them make it right. I mean, you've, you've felt that, I'm sure, in your life. Oh, yeah. Now, I have, as the result of therapy, introspection, philosophy, willpower, you name it, I have gritted my teeth and resisted that temptation. I do not chase down the people who have wronged me and attempt to force them to make it right, or to make them make it right, or to bully them, or to shame them or into making it right. With that self-discipline, I mean, it's, a, it's good to have that self-discipline. But just remembering the damage that I was dying, it can make you a little bit crazy, especially. Oh, yeah. I absolutely, completely, and totally understand. You can circle that drain forever, can't we all? Yeah. Regardless of our culture, we can, we can all find in, in, in our countries, in our cultures, in our tribes, in our lives, in our families, in ourselves, in our hearts, we can all find injustice that we can stare at until our eyes fall out. Yeah. And we can obsess about, and I know that's begging the question, and it's not an argument, but we can obsess about these wrongs that were done to it, unto us. And it gets that hot fight-or-flight thing going, and, and we, we want to get sucked into the drama of making wrongs right again and restoring the balance and making everything better and it's fixing like it. you get. Yeah. I'm sorry? It's it, like, it is. It's a great, look, it's a great temptation, right? Yeah. Just an ego kind of high. 
Believe well, I mean, this is a lot of the stories, a lot of the stories that we hear, right? That there's there's an injustice, right? I mean, superheroes, there's an injustice, and the man goes to fight the injustice and to make things better. Mm-hmm. And I, look, I can't, I can't speak for, I can't speak for indigenous people, obviously. And and but but what I can say is that in my own life, the temptation to follow dark deeds down to a dark place and to attempt to bring lightness and sunshine and butterflies to a cave of historical disasters and corruptions and horrendous behavior. That is a great temptation. We fight it. We face it in our personal lives. If we have been deeply wronged, it is not exactly a daily struggle because, you know, once you make the commitment that I'm not going to let the bad people dictate what I do from here on. I am not going to let the evils of the past be the train tracks that I must inevitably follow in the future. What is freedom from evil? Is it pursuing evil and chasing it down and grabbing it by the throat and shaking it until gold and apologies and fixedness fall out of its eye sockets? I think that's to some degree becoming what we despise. Ah, the indigenous people suffered at the hands of the state. So now they wish restitution at the hands of the state, which must make other people suffer. How is this not a pendulum? Right. How is this not a pendulum that is a blade? How can we ever find peace with each other, we tribes, if we are continually grabbing the guns of the state and training it on each other? And saying, well, you did me wrong. No, you did me wrong. Well, what you, you know, the wrong that my ancestors did you, you are now doing against me. At least theirs is separated by time. Yours is in the here and now. And, oh, how is it working out for people who take that path? How is it working out for people who take that path of rubbing forever the salt in the wounds, seeking restitution from the very evil agency that committed the injustices and wrongs in the first place? How is it working out? We can see so many examples of this throughout history across the world. In now, so many examples of this. If I brooded over the wrongs that were done to me many, many years ago, and I chased the people down and I cornered the people and tried to make them pay for what they did, I would lose because they're much better at being bad than I am at making them good. They have much more experience being bad than I have trying to reform badness. They are deeply studied and knowledgeable in the arts of wrongness. And this is my first rodeo at making bad things good, making bad people good. They have way, way more experience than I will ever be in this realm. And I'll lose. I'll lose. And I never get to escape bad people if I'm always circling back and trying to punish them. All that means is I will now forever spend my life around bad people trying to reform them, trying to make them pay, trying to make them suffer, trying to make them see the errors of their ways, trying to make it better, trying to, oh, I will never be free. I don't have bad people in my life. And there is only one way. There is only one way to get bad people out of your life, my friend. And that is to give up the idea of revenge. Or trying to save them. 
Yeah, I don't know that there's any people who genuinely feel that they want to save bad people. I think that's, I think that's a lie people tell themselves to give themselves some wow. virtue signaling, better motives for what is fundamentally vengeance. Listen, don't get me wrong. Revenge can be fine in certain times. There's nothing. I mean, I have no like nothing innate. Like, oh, we should never. I'm not a pacifist. But what I'm saying is that in the big arc of your life, revenge costs you the company of good people because a good person, a good person does not want to be around somebody obsessed with revenge. Yeah. They don't want to be around somebody who is circling the drain, staring at past injustices, feeding off their own resentments, however legitimate they may be. And the more legitimate they are, the more dangerous they are, because the harder they are to let go of. And the letting go of things doesn't mean forgiveness. That's I mean, I don't forgive the people who've done me wrong. No. But I wish, I wish to be free of their influence, and the desire for vengeance is the surrender of will to evildoers. Yeah. Because now they run, they run my life. Sorry, go ahead. After you come to terms with not wanting to take revenge out on people, uh, the next thing you might want to think of, you might end up thinking about is trying to heal the people around you. And I have people in my my family who you know are not doing good, and I want to help them as much as possible. But you know, maybe the healthiest thing is to just let go. I I read I was reading this book called uh, The Origin of Illness by Dr. Robert Kepe, and he says that uh, pain comes from over-idolization. So if I idolize a particular vision, if I have a vision of how I want things to be, my attachment to wanting to see that vision carry out can end up in just my pain. Like, for example, my, mm. my mother, she, uh, she always wants the family to be closer together, more tight-knit, more family picnics and reunions and stuff like that to your brothers and sisters, to your immediate family, to all the family. Right. But it's just, it just doesn't come together. And I just see the pain that she feels from that, you know? So after, yep. you know, after getting over the revenge part, how do, how do we healthily, I don't know, how do we get over trying to heal ourselves if it's not happening? Well, you know, once I think once you're over the revenge part, then you can look at a future free of the clutters of historical evils. I think that does a lot to the healing. But my particular dedication, I don't know if it's for everyone, but I'm, again, just all I can do is speak from the heart in this, in this issue and, and hope that it's helpful. But my particular dedication is I do not want vengeance against evildoers, but I'll tell you what I do want. I want to take away power from evildoers. I want to take away their power. And I don't want to take away their power by confronting them or I, like I want to take away the hold that evildoers have over others. So this is why I say that the, the, the potentially positive interactions that could have occurred between these two tribes were smashed and destroyed by the power of the state just as two religions can benefit from each other without the power of the state. There is, there are things to be learned from 
religions other than your own, even if they're even if you're an atheist. Yeah. There are things that I learn from Christianity. There are things I admire about Islam. There are things to be learned. But not if there's the state. Because other religions come with different perspectives that can be mind altering and mind opening. And it's not like oh my God, I mean you've heard some of the callers into this show recently. It's not like people in Europe or people in the West. It's not like they can't benefit from a greater focus on virtue and a greater focus on self-restraint and a greater focus on the bigger picture in society. And, and so there's things that Westerners could have learned from Aboriginals, things that Aboriginals could have learned from Westerners, mutually beneficial. But the moment the state comes in, well, then it becomes a form of legitimized civil war where everybody tries to grab control of the state. And sometimes the Westerners have control of the state and they're sterilizing and they're ripping kids away from their families and they're forcing the indigenous population to get married to be like, then, then oh, okay, that's right. Slavery, Jim Crow. And then other people get a hold of the state. And maybe now the, 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 the indigenous population has more control of the state. And now there's lots of, people being taxed to send off welfare to, to these populations and now the, the, the blacks are trying to gain control of the state and impose a particular view and vision and affirmative action and other forms of injustices as swing back and forth, back and forth, everyone trying to grab the gun in the room. Mm -hmm. Because it's there and if you don't get it, someone else is going to get it. And the natives, you know, this is the great temptation to say, well, you know, when the white people had control of the state, look at the disastrous things that they did to us. So we better get control of the state. And that pendulum is going to go back and forth and back and forth. Yeah. I really feel that, uh, you know, people in general, they want to funnel power to individuals that they have faith in purely because they're just kind of lazy. You know, they want to, they want to get that peace of mind. And that's why we'll always have the problem with people wanting the state, people wanting power to exist. You know what I mean? Yes. And <laughs> this is the, interesting thing about this is this is how like Jesse this is how corrupting the state is is that among in the indigenous population in the tribal society was there a state mm, no there's yeah. hierarchy for every tribe yeah of course hierarchy I get that and I get that and, and look I'm not saying it was all anarcho-capitalist or anything like that but there was not a state in the way that Westerners would conceive of a state. No. And that's what's so incredible. This is how corrupting the power of the state is. That the state has even infected, the idea of the state and the power of the state has even infected a group that for thousands and thousands of years had no state, as we would understand it. Yeah. It's just, yeah. That's how powerful and terrifying the modern state is. Uh, what's your opinion on the, the Idol No More movement? The good oh, of it. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Why don't you give a bit of an explanation for the listeners? The Idol No More movement is uh, a recent movement. It's been around for a few years. where a bunch of the bands of the native people have come together and they've made, they've made big activist movements to... Oops, stop production on pipelines to uh lobby the government in a way to yeah i i i'm actually uh uh i work on pipelines actually 
And I've once had a job where the I Don't Know More movement, they blocked the roads so we couldn't get to work. So you couldn't get to work? Yeah. I got paid right. and I got off for a few days, but... Yeah. So Idle No More, uh, I mean, aren't they enforcing idleness by not letting people get to work? I'm not sure I quite understand the the phrase. What is it supposed to mean? Uh, it, basically, it's the mentality that, okay, we've been sitting around letting so much stuff happen that we're not going to sit around anymore and we're going to do something. Yeah, okay, well, so activists, right? Not necessarily, yeah. right? Yeah. It's just activists, right? And the activism, I assume, is to influence the state and to try and get what they want from the state. You know, this is my probably complete nonsense recommendation or speech, but it goes something like this. Stop dealing with the state. Boycott the state. Stop taking money from the state. Stop taking power from the state. Stop trying to control the state. Stop trying to influence the state. Have your own history and your own culture return to you by stop attempting to grab the gun of the state, which is a white man's gun, out of the hands of white men and women. Yeah. Boycott the mechanism of a traditional enemy. Mm-hmm. Lead the way, not just for the indigenous population, but for all people tempted by the power of the state. Walk away from the negotiations. Walk away from the table. Walk away from the, quote, free goodies. They're unjust. They're unjust. You know, kids born now are not responsible for what happened due to the power of the state in 1933. They should not have to pay. That is unjust. Mm-hmm. Walk away. That does not mean walk away from society. That does not mean be isolated in remote areas. doesn't mean anything like that to me. It just means put down the ring of power. Walk away from the goal of controlling the state. Lead the way. You know, for a group of people who refuse to be slaves, which is one of the most powerful moments and interactions in human history, in my opinion. Well, to refuse to be a slave means to walk away from the temptation to control the power of the state. The power of the slave. Yeah. And if indigenous people were to do that, what an example they would set for others. And I think that there is something in the constitution of indigenous people that yearns for a kind of freedom that is hard for some of the other minorities to experience. What's, uh, so if we got government out of the way, pretending that government doesn't exist right now, we finished it. What do you think are some viable solutions to our cultural problems? For example, let's say I was a wealthy man. And I just want to give to charity. I'd want to, like, what kind of charity do you think helps us with our problems? Because my mom, she actually, she works for the government. She's a social outreach manager. And so mm. she, she's actually for indigenous people. And she helps, uh, she helps new parents to uh, become more functional, you know, to, she gives them help, become better parents. Well, certainly worse things to do with your life, right? I mean, you know me, I'm all the way, if somebody's helping people be better parents, you know, it's hard for me to say anything negative about that, so. There's certainly worse government social programs, too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Indigenous people 
I, I'm sorry for all these generalizations, but I'm just sort of based, based on my experience. And I've, I've worked with some indigenous people. I mean, I visited reservations in, in northern Ontario and I work with some indigenous people as well. Like astonishingly robust and hardy people. Like, why, I mean, why did you visit the reservations for which for which reasons? I was invited. Oh, okay. So you just want to you know see how it was like? Well, yeah. I mean, I I met so so I worked with some natives, right? They did uh, trailblazing and and uh, all that for what you know and like ridiculous, like up at dawn and working all day. It's like I'm, uh, you know I'm, t- I'm 19 years old and struggling to even try to keep up. Did you do a sweat? And uh, I'm sorry. Did you do a sweat with them? No, no, I just, I visited and, uh, but no, I didn't do a sweat. But, um, so what worked in the past is not a bad place to start. And, you know, in the absence of the state, you know, there will be some people who wish to stay with the old ways, just as there are quote conservatives in uh, every group and they'll wish to sort of preserve the old ways. And in the absence of the drip drip of government resources, they'll be back to, finding that challenging balance between human beings and nature that we're all struggling in every civilization to try and find. You know, like, we love nature, but we don't want nature to be in charge because that comes with smallpox and other god-awful stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So trying try to find that challenging balance in the absence of state power is something that indigenous populations, I think, can help a lot with. So some, some, of course, some indigenous people will choose to join the, quote, mainstream society, and some people will choose to remain um, wedded to the old ways. But they will do so with challenge and with risk. You know, when you're on, sorry for this completely cheesy reference, but when you are on government welfare, it's like playing a first-person shooter video game in God mode. You can't really fail. It's kind of boring. Yeah. It, it's empty. It's an empty experience. And, you know, I've, and sorry, go ahead. I've uh, I've been exposed to some pretty uh, some pretty bad things through my mom's work, and one thing that really upsets me the most is uh, the way the welfare system is. It actually incentivizes the poor people to want to have more kids because the government will pay them more money. And I've yep. even met mothers who say, I think I'm going to have one more kid because the government's going to give me a little bit more money to yeah. do that. Yeah, no, that's that's certainly not central to indigenous peoples. I mean, I said this a while back ago. I think it was last summer, just listening to two single moms talk about, you know, mm-hmm. down to the dollar and change what they could get for various decisions around procreation and so on. The accessibility of sperm didn't seem to be a big challenge for them. Guys, but um, yeah, listen, I mean, and, and the, I'm giving you advice that's consistent with the advice I give just about everyone who calls in, which is if you can find a way to minimize your contact with the state, then do so. Yeah. Uh, and it is, you know, this, the, the, the temptation of having been wronged and indigenous populations have been wronged. And now some of it is, you know, assholes from Europe and some of it is just some bad luck, right? The alcohol thing, bad luck, smallpox. It was not a bioweapon. It was just bad luck. You know, I mean, there was certain, you know, smallpox had ravished the European population for thousands of years, and indigenous peoples in North America had been largely unexposed to it, and uh, it was brutal and gruesome. Yeah. But it was not, you know, here you go, <coughs> cough into this now, it's going to kill you, right? I mean, it was, uh, you know, I didn't even know the germ theory when this stuff, I mean, there was no germ theory of, of 
transmission when when a lot of this stuff was going down. doesn't mean it's any less horrible. It just means that it was not a willed evil in the same way that some of the other stuff that we're talking about here was, if that makes sense. So there have been wrongs, and um, there has been confusion, and a lot of it has been... You know, I, I like the story of... And I, I hope it's more than a story. I'm sure there'll be people who'll tell me it's not. But I like the story of the fact that, uh, you know... <laughs> The, the, the pilgrims, uh, some of the early pilgrims that came over started this socialism crap, right? They all were collective farming and they all started starving to death. And then the natives were like, why are you doing that? Here's some food, right? I mean, that's how things could have gone to some degree prior because there was no state back then. Yeah. Personal so responsibility things... just it forces you to be a better productive person. Yeah. And and so it's funny that the the, uh, the original, some of the original British settlers were saved from socialism by the natives, and now the natives are trapped in socialism <laughs> from the descendants. You know, it's like, oh, indigenous people, sorry. Uh, that is, um, that's tragic, and one of the horrible ironies of history. Everything that a culture can teach you is wiped away, can be wiped away with just the new generation, I mean, which right. is what they try to do with residential schooling, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, this is um, multiculturalism. Again, I never have any problem with multiculturalism as a whole if there's no state. But given that there is a state, we have to sort of take that into account. Mm -hmm. But I, I fundamentally think that the letting go of resentment is really, really hard. Because I think for certain groups that have been beaten down and excluded for long enough, the resentment is the identity. The culture has become the culture of resentment. And resentment is not the right word because it's not strong enough. But hatred is too chaotic a word for it. But the victimhood and the sense of injustice and the sense of hostility and the thirst for vengeance that is thinly cloaked in the idea of restitution, it becomes so compelling and such a drama and such a, a character-defining trait that it almost elbows aside everything else. You know, there's an old saying in economics that bad money drives out good money. And vengeance drives out personality and you become a reaction to injustices that nobody initiated who's alive, that nobody had any control over who's alive, and that no one could be held accountable for without creating more injustice. Yeah. And that is a very, very hard narrative to let go of. But that would be, from, from my personal experience, and I, I believe that we have enough in common, that we may be different tribes, we have enough in common that what is most de deeply felt for one can also be most valuable for the other. But in my personal experience, man, letting go of the desire for vengeance has freed me from the power of evil. Mm -hmm. And the best revenge, as the old saying goes, the best revenge is a better life. Mm -hmm. As long as you want to bend evil to your will, you will forever be bent to the will of evil. So those would be my suggestions, you know, again, with all the caveats in the world. But. Now, how do we spread that message worldwide? Well, we just did a conversation about it. <laughs> That's not a bad start, would you say? <laughs> I mean, look, you and I are both having a, a civilized and I think very productive and enjoyable discussion. Because, you know, we're always told, let's have an honest conversation about race. Let's have an honest conversation about tribalism. Let's have an honest conversation about multiculturalism. I think you and I, just as I have with, um, with Muslims and I have had with blacks and I've had with a wide variety of people, we're having an honest conversation and a respectful and mutual exchange of ideas about where things are and where they could go. 
I think we've just done a great damn service <laughs> to, to the planet. I actually, I was going to make a joke about how we need to spread this message through the state. Make it mandatory. <laughs> I'll tell you what, man. You and I, we're going to get together on the weekend and we're going to write a hand puppet play for this. And we're going to take it on tour. Sounds and, good. Uh, <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll open for Gord Downey's last tour. <laughs> Do you know his number? Uh, yeah, I think it's getting shorter. What is that they say? Oh, there's my calendar. It's days remembered. Mm. But listen, man, thanks so much for calling in. Will you will you stay in touch? Let us know how things uh, are going and what you do. Yeah, I'd love to ask more questions and be brought back on too. It was a great pleasure. Uh, you're certainly welcome back anytime. And thank you for um, being part of this conversation. Yeah. Thank you, Stefan. Take care, man. All the best. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, so much for calling in. This evening, always a deep and abiding pleasure to speak to uh, who I genuinely and generally perceive as the smartest group of listeners in the known universe. Sounds like praise. I think there's thousands of shows of empirical evidence, or at least hundreds of the call-in shows. So thank you everyone so much for listening. Tonight, today, tomorrow, and uh, until, I don't know, eight minutes before I'm dead, at some point in the hopefully distant future, freedomainradio.com slash donate to help out the show. To help out the show, please, please, freedomainradio.com slash donate. Come and support what you treasure and value. You can follow me on Twitter at Stefan Molyneux. You can use our affiliate link if you are going to do some shopping, fdrurl.com slash Amazon. And I really uh, appreciate everyone's time, attention tonight. We will speak to you soon. Have yourself a delightfully and deliciously wonderful couple of days.